welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're looking at the book of Revelation. We're going to fly over at about 30,000 feet. I'm going to give you a big overview. We're going to look at the trumpets. And then we're going to crash dive right above the treetops and apply the principle that we see at work in the trumpets in our own lives today. Because it's, 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 a, it's one of the most essential, vital principles of all. So we're going to, you're going to get quite the tour of the book of, of, of a section of Revelation and then we'll go right down and apply it to ourselves. Heavenly Father, we ask for the word to open up to us. We want you to, Lord, have your way in our hearts. We, we come with expectant open hearts to the word of God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have given a light to our path. And we walk in that light today. I ask for grace to speak the word so that we hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come at last to the moment when the seventh seal is broken. And the scroll can be opened. The time for judgment has arrived. One spiritual season of earth's history is giving way to another. The favorable year of the Lord is being replaced by the day of vengeance of our God. The Lamb of God is now rising up as the Lion of God. But even in this transition, God's mercy can be seen. Like a watchman on the wall... He sounds the trumpet to warn the earth, destruction is near. Why? Why, does he, why doesn't he just immediately gather his heavenly host and descend on the earth? There can only be one answer to this question, because he wants to give people one more chance to repent. Isn't he amazing? Today, after an overview of the seven trumpets, we'll look more closely at the one word which defines God's goal, that is, repentance. Then we'll ask, why is it so hard for people to repent? For that matter, why is it sometimes so hard for us as believers to repent in certain areas? And finally, we'll review ways repentance releases God's blessing in our daily lives. Revelation chapter 8. I'll read... verses uh, 1 through 6, and then I'm going to just kind of, I'll, as we go, get into the run-through, I'll, I'll, I'll highlight from there on. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, and filled it with the fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunders, and sounds, and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. 
All right, we've been in the heavenly throne room. We've seen the Ancient of Days with a scroll in his right hand. Jesus Christ stepped forward and took that scroll out of the hand of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and he began to break seven seals which were down its outer edge. And as he broke each one of them, the work of the Antichrist was released. This was the time in which God was going to release human evil at a level uh, it's actually been restrained all through history. So he breaks, the, breaks these seals and out comes finally this final expression of the Antichrist. We're down to the seventh seal. You notice until the, every seal is broken, you can't open the scroll. The scroll's not been opened. We haven't gotten to this particular threshold. We've been just leading up to it as the seals are broken. But now he breaks the seventh seal, which means the scroll can be opened and the prophecies that are contained there can be read. The prophecies are the prophecies about Jesus Christ as the Lion of God. He has fulfilled the prophecies of him as the Lamb of God, dying for our sins, bearing it, our, our suffering and our sorrow. But now he's going to come and fulfill all the rest of the prophecies about him. He will come in power. He is coming as a king. He is coming with a rod of iron and will crush the nations as he shatters clay pots. No longer the season of grace, the season of God's patience, allowing this horrendous amount of evil and violence on this planet while the gospel goes forth and people are being saved has come to an end. The scroll is opened and the, and the Lord of, of, of all is reading out the prophecies. Okay, we've come to that. It says then, that there is a moment of, uh, there's a half an hour of silence. It's an odd statement. In a Jewish service, in a temple, there is an altar, there is a prayer service every morning and every evening. Right? That goes clear back from the tabernacle every morning, every evening. The priests, the, high, uh, the, the various priests will come in and they'll trim the, the seven-branch lampstand. Remember that? They'll change the oil. They'll wash off the soot. They'll, they'll, they'll have that, that burning. There's a process for all of that. But then they'll also offer incense on the altar of incense. I, you remember when we went through Exodus, it's 18 inches by 18 inches by 36 inches high. It's a small uh, little square table with a gold plate on the top and some edging around it so the, the coals and things don't fall off it. The high, the, not just the high priest, the priest who's in charge to do this will, will go out. There's several who are working. They'll go out and they'll get the coals in a metal container, a carrier, and they bring them in and they pour them on the top of this gold plate. The high priest, I keep saying that, forgive me. The priest, it is rotated who does this. The priest will take a bowl of finely ground incense, various spices, one of which is designed to smoke. One of the spices is so that it makes a thick, dense smoke. It's not just uh, sweet smelling, but also it's really smoky. And he will take, when it comes time, he will take two handfuls of this. They use about half a pound a day between the morning and the evening. So we're putting stuff on this thing. Uh, two big handfuls of this, and he'll pile it on those hot, burning coals. 
And when he does, the smoke just billows. It just, and I imagine it's hard to see. It's that kind of smoke. This sweet-smelling cloud just fills the place. But let me, let me back up. They clean everything from the last offering. They prepare everything. They've got, they've got, they've got the fire. They've got the, the incense. But then there is this moment when everything stops. And only the one priest whose turn it is to offer the incense offering. By the way, this was what Zechariah did when he heard about John the Baptist. Remember Zechariah and Elizabeth? He was, he was the one elected for that day to do this. Okay. So anyway, he, he stands there with this, with this incense and all. Everybody else, all the other priests drop out and they go, just, they go outside. And this is the time when the, when the people come. The people all gather and here's what they do. Everybody drops to their knees with their hands in the air. They're all Pentecostals. <laughs> I just can't help making the point every time. I mean, you, you know, you think this is odd? Well, you better get with it. Because this is what the people of God have been doing for millennia. All right, so they're on, they're on their knees with their hands in the air, and it goes silent. There is a season of silence where nothing is said out loud, and the people in their hearts pour out their prayers to God. Got it? All right, then, at the moment when the, the leading priest says, now, the, the priest whose turn it is will go forward, and on the way, he'll pass a big, I think it's a gong. I don't know what it is. I know the name of it. And it's, this big, it's a musical instrument, and I think he wangs the thing, and everybody hears, ah, the offering's being made. And then he steps forward, up three steps, and takes this handful, two handfuls, of this sweet-smelling incense and puts it on those hot coals, and poof, up goes this cloud, which represents what? The prayers of the saints, exactly. He now, as the priest, is bringing the prayers of all the people before the Lord, and you remember, it's a sweet aroma to God. He loves our prayers. This is a beautiful thing, and the prayers rise up before him in this great cloud. That's just what you saw. It's just the Jewish offering service, the silence at all. This is nothing bizarre. It's a totally a clear meaning. The lamb broke the seventh seal, silence in heaven. All that now there's a season where the prayers of the saints are rising up before God in preparation for the offering. And I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came, stood at the altar, holding the golden censer, full of these coals. Much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of, notice this, all the saints. We saw in chapter 6 this same incense altar with the souls of the martyrs beneath it. Remember that? And they cried out for justice, and the answer was, wait. Now you have the prayers of not just the martyrs, of all the saints. How many times have you prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven? Now, that brings God's presence into our practical daily lives. But there's a bigger prayer behind it, isn't there? There's a prayer that says, God, bring your kingdom. Stop this insanity. <laughs> Show up, isn't there? Come on earth as it is in heaven. And your, the answer to your prayer has always been yes. But wait. I will do that, but not now. Even Jesus says, I don't know the hour of the day when that will arrive. Now it has arrived. God is hearing the prayers of all his saints for all the generations. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Say that with me. Thy kingdom come. 
thy will be done. Like sweet aroma that rises before God, and the answer is yes, now it will happen. All right? And then it says something in verse 5 that's rather odd. It says, the angel took the censer, and he goes out and he gets another load of hot coals, and it, he doesn't just pour it out, he casts it onto the earth. These hot coals, here comes the judgment of God. The purifying fire of God is coming onto planet earth. And the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now, I have to, I have to make a correction in what I said. I talked about these trumpets, and I said what I said. They, I, I was rather certain they were the silver trumpets that they used, you know, out of Numbers chapter ten. I, I, let me step back. I, I, when I went into the book of Revelation, I thought I know this book. God show me stuff. I'm good. <laughs> Pride goeth before. Yes, a fall. And I tell you, the more I've gotten into this thing is how much I didn't know. There are so many prophetic themes in this thing. It is so rich. It's amazing. And I blew it on that trumpet thing. Um, there are two words in the Hebrew for trumpet. There's actually little other words for coronets and stuff. But there's two major trumpets. One's the silver trumpets, and there's a word for that. And the other is for this ram's horn that we're familiar with that I made a little bit of light of, and I apologize for that. This beautiful ram's horn. It's called the shofar. And when you're reading the Hebrew, there's no mystery as to what kind of trumpet you're looking at. It just uses the word. In the Greek, in the New Testament, it's all one word, so you don't know. And in English, of course, we just use the word trumpet. So we're a little baffled as what we're talking about. Trumpets were used for a number of things. I told you that. Militarily, they called out and assembled the troops, and they also told the nation to march in the exodus. Different tribes knew there, they, there, was, there was blasts for particular groups of tribes, all of that kind of thing. There were sacred use of the trumpet. That's the shofar. The shofar was blown, and it was a call to God to, to come to his people and be king. And, and we're calling on the Lord, come, king of Israel, and be our Lord. It was a beautiful thing. And so it was used in worship. It, it was used on, a, on Jubilee. It would, uh, they'd go through the entire land with the shofar, through the entire nation. The shofar would be carried through city to city and blown on the year of Jubilee. Is that beautiful or what? You know, all debts are free. Well, everything reverts back on, on the year of Jubilee. But there's, an, there's another use that I, I overlooked, and um, I believe it's the one that's right. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel Daniel, chapter 33. God is speaking to Ezekiel, and he's, he's talking to him as a prophet, but he uses this illustration, beginning at verse 2, Ezekiel 33. Son of man, speak to the sons of your people, and say to them, if I bring a sword upon a, a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword, that would mean an advancing enemy army, coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet. And what word do you think he uses here? It's the shofar. So I, I was exactly wrong. And, and warns the people, 
Then he who hears the sound of the shofar and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. That means the moral responsibility for his death is his own. It's his own dumb fault. He didn't heed the call, didn't heed the warning. What happens to him? It's his own fault. He did not hear the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. His life is, he forfeits his own life, but, that he ha, but had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the, the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. You are responsible for his death and I will deal with you. Now he's talking to Ezekiel, and he's, the, 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 the trumpet call he's to give is the prophetic word. He's supposed to speak the word so that people can be warned from the destruction that was coming upon the, the nation. By the way, that still applies, and it's a, it's a kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? When God gives us a word, it needs to be spoken. We need to be faithful to our assignment. This is the picture, I'm rather certain, because of the entire context. Let's go back to Revelation 8. This is the picture that we're seeing here. It isn't military. It isn't even sacred use in that certain sense. It is the watchman on the wall. These angels now, seven of them, I believe, have these great shofars, and they're blowing a warning to the earth. Repent, for destruction draws near. Repent. They are blowing the shofar. Let's look at the... As, as each one blows... Something disastrous takes place, but they, I want you to notice they are partial disasters. It'll be a third of this and a third of that, leaving two-thirds intact. God is going to measure out. Now, the season of the trumpets is a time of partial disasters warning the earth that the full wrath of God will follow shortly. Why does he give this period of time? Mercy. He had every right to simply open the scroll, come down and fry them all. But he didn't. Instead, being the heavenly father he is, he warns the earth over and over again, repent. Disaster draws near. Repent. And we'll see what happens. The first uh, trumpet is verse 7 there. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. That means People and animals died, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and a third of the green, and the green grass, pardon me, all of it was burned up. There are massive, number one, there'll be massive thunderstorms which ignite forest and prairie fires, and there will be crushing hail. That's not really hard to imagine. You remember how polluted the atmosphere was on that earlier catastrophe. We had this huge earthquake. I, sub I submitted, I thought it was probably an impact from an asteroid or something on that or order that just rang the earth. We pr produced a lot of pollution. The, the moon became blood. The sun was darkened. You have this, this, this clouded atmosphere. And I can imagine the thunderstorms. Anyone remember Mount St. Helens, some of those wild things that took place when that stuff went into the air? It changes the dynamics, doesn't it? You have these horrific storms and things. Well, imagine the earth with that kind of uh, atmosphere. I don't know how long it's been since that last uh, crisis, but, the air, but you begin to have these thunderstorms that are producing huge hail uh, and, de and destroying life. Secondly, 
Verse 8, the second angel sounded something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, died in other words. A third of the creatures that were in the sea that had life died. A third of the ships were destroyed. It's a great mountain. It could be one of two things. I, it could be a volcano. We could be talking about a huge volcano, but I have a hard time imagining how a volcano destroys a third of the sea. Um, I know Krakatoa, when it blew there in, uh, in uh, Indonesia, uh, it could be heard in uh, South America. It was the loudest sound that planet Earth has, has ever heard during human existence. And it was apparently just an amazing thing. Uh, was it something like that? Or is this speaking of a meteorite or comet coming down? Something's going to happen that will actually kill the life in the sea and destroy a, a, an enormous amount of shipping. They'll, they'll be swamped in some kind of ca catastrophe. Number three, verse 12. Pardon me, uh, verse 10. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the stars became Wormwood, and uh, pardon me, a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Well, thirdly, we know there is drinking water and fresh water becomes polluted. Uh, wormwood, again, I thought I knew things. Wormwood, I had no idea, is a prophetic theme. It goes all through Scripture. It starts with Moses. Moses says to the people of Israel, for your idolatry, God will give you wormwood to drink. And it was a plant that grew, and it was a very bitter-tasting plant. It was, it was, it was symbolic of, of bitterness and sour, uh, ugly, ugly. God will give you bitterness for your idolatry. Well, Amos uses it. Jeremiah uses it. He uses it in his Lamentations. The Proverbs uses it. Um, it. It's carried right on through this whole theme of wormwood. And it's what God does for judging people who are idolatrous. What does this tell us about the last day's earth? They are worshiping false gods. Of course, in this case, it's going to be the Antichrist himself. Talk about the ultimate idol. What would cause that? What would sour all of the waters like this? My, my suggestion is acid rain. If you have this kind of polluted atmosphere and these, these kinds of storms, the pollution to the water would be remarkable. Uh, I don't know. That's just a guess. But the water's going bad. Fourthly, number 12, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, that a third of them would, not, would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. People speculate all sorts of things. Here's mine. I just think the atmosphere is so polluted, you only see the sun and this moon and the stars in the, in the center of the sky because it's so thick in the horizons. You've just got this dark cloud, and only during a portion of the day can you see the sun or could you see the moon at night? You have this tremendously polluted atmosphere. Darkness has come over, come over the land. Now, notice something here. We have seen four trumpet blasts, each of them bringing a natural disaster, a partial one, a severe one, but a partial one, leaving two-thirds of things intact. Verse 13, things change. Let's see what happens. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid heaven. 
saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who are on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. John in his vision looks up and there in the center of the sky is a great eagle soaring, just making great circles in the sky above the earth and crying out, Woe. Woe is a cry of despair. It comes, the old English is way. That's where we get wail. It's what you say when you're miserable. It's the, it's the wails and the agony that comes out of people when they're in total despair and misery. And so the, the eagle is saying, it's going to become far worse. You enjoying this? <laughs> I'm looking yeah, I'm looking for it. <laughs> it's going to be, he says, it's, it, it, he said, this has been natural disaster, but the last three trumpets are woes that are at another level altogether. And I'll show you what, what happens. I believe that there have been historic restraints on spiritual evil. God has withheld. You may think it's bad, but God has only allowed a certain amount of the devil's work and of demonic work on this planet. We're told that the Antichrist himself, that spirit of lawlessness, is restrained. It's held back. The hand of God has kept it in control, I think, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. This Antichrist has tried to rise since Nimrod gathered people in, 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 in what is now Iraq and tried to build that tower and, and uh, start it then. God has held it all back. When angels did particularly ugly things, we saw it when we went through the book of Genesis, a portion of them, God would not tolerate their behavior. It was beyond even the bounds of evil, and he put them in a place called the abyss. He locked them up, and they were not allowed to, uh, to be free. Now, we're going to see God. The last three woes are spiritual, in my opinion. This will break with what, with, with what others say, whatever. Um, but I, if I, I think what you're going to see is God taking his hand off and allowing spiritual evil to flood the earth. Here's why. He's going to give the planet a taste of hell. He says, you want, if you don't repent, if you don't choose me, I want to show you who you'll spend your eternity with. I want you to give a taste, get a taste of what's ahead. Look at the, look at the uh, fifth trumpet. Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven. And notice it's in the past tense, which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now, mine says bottomless pit, and this is where they're trying to be helpful. The, the Greek is quite specific. It says the, key, the shaft of the abyss. There's no, it's exactly the words that are there. The shaft of the abyss. And he opened the shaft of the abyss... And smoke went out of it, like the smoke of a great pit. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and the power was given to them as scorpions have over the earth power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth nor any green thing, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The ones we've particularly seen sealed are the 144,000, but I... I and, but I would say, if the church is here, they're sealed, and if they're not here, it's not an issue. And they, do were not, and they were not permitted to kill anyone, 
but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings. And then he describes really, really, really ugly demons. And he says they have the face of a man, hair like women, and teeth like, like lions, kind of like a rock group. Now, I know that the contemporary thing to say is that these are helicopters, and it certainly does look, I mean, it sounds like an ugly helicopter. But notice verse 11. It says, And they have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon, destruction. Who does that sound like? Yeah, these are the minions of Satan. I suggest that the key was given to open the shaft of the abyss, and that what pours out is a demonic swarm like smoke or like a locust infestation. A great cloud of demons are released. You know, we've got enough of them now, but the earth is going to be filled with a demonic oppression that is beyond anything we've ever seen. And it will bring torment, not death, mental, emotional, torment, anguish of heart, and possibly uh, suffering, physical suffering as well. Number six, sixth trumpet. The sixth angel blows, and it says that there are four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day of the month, the month and the day, were released so that they could kill a third of mankind. Now we've got death, not just torment, but death. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. Now, this is either a human army or it is a demonic army. And I'll, I'll show you why I think, it is a, a, I think it's a demonic army. We've often said, who can field an army of 200 million? Well, it's got to be the Chinese, and so we beat up on the Chinese. But why the four angels at the Euphrates? Did you just dry it up so the tanks could go across? I mean, what's the point of this? If you recall, the Tower of Babel was built there at the Euphrates. And that spirit of Antichrist was withheld. That's what God put down. We don't, we, you know, we go by the Tower of Babel like it's a cute story. It's not a cute story. It was the first expression of the spirit of Antichrist. And God stopped it there because it wasn't time. There was so much history that had to still come. So he restrained that whole thing. Well, now these angels are removed and this 200 million, this enormous force of something, riding like horsemen. They're dressed in, they're dressed in uh, red, yellow, and blue. But it says in verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by these three what? Plagues. And the fire and smoke and, smoke and brimstone proceeded out of their mouths. And, and I know you could, it could be army tanks and all of that. Uh, but verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by what? Plagues. Plagues. The first is clearly, in my opinion, indisputably, I think, it's a plague of demonic locusts. I mean, like locusts, the, the demons are released. The second one seems to be plagues and death, demonic, demonic disease. The third one is the real bell ringer, the third woe. These are the two woes that we've just seen. But I want you to notice before you move on, look at verse 20. 
they, the ones that weren't killed, how did they respond? What was God looking for in blowing these trumpets? What was he trying to produce in the hearts of humans? It says they did not what? Repent. Say it again. Repent. Now one more. Repent. That's the whole key. That's what the trumpets are about. A season for the earth to repent. This severe warning of What's to come? Even down in verse 21, they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immorality or their thefts. They did not repent. It tells you something. No more salvation is taking place. Redemption has ended. The earth is wrung out like a, like a towel. The last drop of water has been wrung out of it. The last souls who are going to repent and turn to God in this time have stopped and the earth, the hearts of the human race become hard. They'll blaspheme God, they'll curse God, but they won't believe in God. They won't repent. Now, I'll show you the last one just so we finish out the three woes. We will see it again. Verse 14 of chapter 11. The second woe is past. I'm almost done at 30,000 feet and we're coming down quickly. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then it says the seventh angel sounded, and we go into this remarkable account uh, in chapter 12, and I'll start at verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7, and there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then comes this warning, look out, he's arrived, and he, his time's short, and he's fierce. It's like, a, like, this, like this angry rattlesnake has been thrown out of heaven and lands on the planet. You say, well, hasn't he been here all along? No. The devil is not divine. He is not everywhere. Only God is omnipresent. The devil is a localized personal spirit. He was an archangel, powerful one, but he's been basically serving in heaven. He'll case, Job tells us he'll take a walk around, but he has served in heaven accusing you. He is continually, incessantly, relentlessly accusing us before God for our sins. He is now cast out of heaven, and he personally arrives back on planet earth. And what happens? He will in basically possess, totally possess the Antichrist. The Antichrist has been, been uh, uh, deeply evil, but he will now become a, the possession of Lucifer himself. At this point, he'll go into the temple, declare himself God, demand worship, and we are at the center point right now. We've come to the center point at the end of the seven trumpets of this seven-year final period of Earth's history. We are now beginning the season of the Great Tribulation. We've just come in the first three and a half years up at this point. All right, now let's go down to uh, 500 feet above the treetops. What's the goal of all of this? What one word is God going after? You tell me wants them to repent. The word repentance means, uh, the Greek word for it is metanoia, just literally means change the mind. And I want you to distinguish something. Repentance is a changing of the mind, a changing of the way we think, 
not sorrow. We're, we're having a hard time in America with this right now. People get caught, people have a mess, and they're sorry. And they, they cry and they say, well, I'm so sorry I did that. I, and they are sorry. But the word sorry, if I, I haven't looked this up, but my guess is the old English would be from sore. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm bruised by this. I, I feel bad for what I did. Well, I look at the mess I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm going to jail or, or worse. Uh, look at all that I've caused. I am sore. I'm sorry for what I did. And uh, because I'm not stupid, I wouldn't do it again. But that isn't repentance. I want to be real specific. Real repentance is a specific thing that happens in a human heart. And it's not just being sorry for what you've done. In, you, don't have, I, you don't need to turn there, but I give you some quotes. From Genesis, we want, we're going to go back to the, to the heart of the matter. In Genesis chapter 2, God made a tree and he put it in the Garden of Eden. There were, there were two. One was the tree of life and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were told not to pick the fruit of that tree, but to leave it alone. In Genesis 3, when, when, when Satan shows up, he tempted them and said, you won't die, but God knows that in the day you pick that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be wise like he is, knowing good from evil. You don't need God to tell you what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. You can decide for yourself. That was the issue. Who decides right from wrong? Who decides good from evil? Is it God or is it us? Adam and Eve, yes, took, took that apple picked it and said, we'll decide. We'll decide right from wrong. And you notice that, that most humans get themselves in trouble not by doing things that they just flagrantly knew were stupid, but by trying to do the right thing. How many times have you tried to do the right thing and gotten yourself in a real mess? Huh? In fact, if you look at people as they age often, some people have just tried and tried and tried to make the right choice, and they have this long history of just fiascos, and they come to the end of their life full of despair and anger. How could it have gone so badly when I tried to do the right thing? Here's the problem. We're not God. I mean, really, you've got to get a hold of this. We're not divine. You don't know what will happen five minutes from now, do you? You don't know what's in other people's hearts. I would tell you, you don't even really understand your own motives. Do you? And then here you are trying to steer your life and decide right from wrong. You were never made, you were never given the gift to make those decisions on your own. And you never will be. And that requires a humility. The heart of repentance is fundamentally a, re a humility. I am not God. I cannot run my own life. I don't know good from evil and right from wrong. I make mistakes all the time. The basic, basic essence of repentance is not saying you're sorry for all the bad things we do. We often, when somebody comes to the Lord, we want them to say, I'm so sorry I did marijuana, and I'm sorry I stole stuff, and I'm sorry I watched nasty things, and I'm sorry. And we go on this list of things we're sorry for. It's not the issue. 
It is not the issue. You can stop doing those nasty things and you still haven't solved a thing. That's not repentance. And I think because we have not dealt with this issue clearly, it's why there are a lot of people in churches in America that are not reborn. They are simply cons become conservatives. They have developed religious philosophy. They may have ordered some of their life, but there's no new birth in them. There are two specific things that must happen for the new birth to take place. The first is repentance, real repentance, what we're on right now. And the other is faith in the finished work of Christ that he has forgiven me for my unrepentance. And that he remains with me and washes me clean continually. Those two things transform you and then God fills you with his spirit. What is the heart of repentance? Now hang on, here it is. This is repentance. It's putting the apple back on the tree. You just gave God back the right to be God. You just said, you're the one who decides right from wrong. You're the one who knows how my life should be lived. You're the one who has that, that lordship in my life. I trust you. That's repentance. And that's the hard, bitter thing in the middle of the human soul. We are proud. We can decide for ourselves. I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'll decide for myself. Thank you very much. Anybody say amen? <laughs> That's the thing that has to snap. That's the root of it. And until that snaps, nothing's happened. We spend so much time just focusing on the finished work of Christ, but we never deal with putting the apple back. And so you got people running around holding the apple, thinking they're saved. Until the apple's out of your hand, you ain't saved. Got it? The apple has to go back. That's the root and the heart of repentance. Now listen, I want to say something. We often think, well, what God is, is well, he's king and he's Lord, and, and we put it in these terms, and he is. And all of these things are true, but you've got to watch something. We are thinking that what he wants from us in repentance is kind of a groveling. He wants us just down like this, you know, going, you are the man. You are, it's you, you know, you're the man. And it's like, he wins, I lose. Right? That is not it. That's not, the, that's not what God's going for. He wants us. Real repentance isn't simply sort of, I mean, I guess it, it, giving up an exhaustion will do. But, but. Okay, take it. Dumb apple. I don't know if you can throw the apple back at the tree. I don't know if it works like that. Stinking apple. What he wants from us is, is different, of a different spirit. He wants you to know who he is. He wants you to see him as your loving Heavenly Father. Because that's the essence of our God. He is a heart of love. And so what you finally come to is not so much just a kneeling and a grovel. It's not kneeling and grovel. What it becomes is where you put your hand in his and say, Father, I trust you. I know your wisdom. I know your God. 
You know all things. You know you formed me in my mother's womb. You have a plan and a purpose for my life. It is, a, it is the right one. It is what I should be doing. It's what I'm made to do. I've been created for a purpose that you have in your heart. And I put my hand in yours, and I want to follow you. Lead, my father. You no longer have a rebellious child. You no longer have a proud child. You have a trusting son or daughter. Got it? That's repentance. It's, and that's the relationship he's drawing us into, not grovel, minion. Take my hand, child. Follow me. And he's told us in his word many things about his ways. And so he, what his word says becomes right to me. What his word tells me not to do, I, I want to stop. What the Holy Spirit's conviction in my heart tells me, I want to obey. I begin to walk a different walk. And here's the, the, I think the most beautiful expression of it is that wonderful passage in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We all know it, I think. If you don't, let's memorize this. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. Got it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust Him. And here's the repentant part. And don't lean, rely on your own understanding. Turn away from what your own, your own view of right and wrong and what needs to be done here. Trusting in Him and acknowledge Him in all your ways. Acknowledge you need Him. Acknowledge that you want His ways. Put your hand in His and he will make straight your paths. Isn't that simple? It is the root of the thing, though. Now, when we come to Christ and get saved, we start with a big general policy decision. God, take the apple. Here, don't throw, I'm not throwing it. I'm just handing it to you. All right. Take the apple. You're the Lord. I give you that place in my life. Then, because of Christ... I look at my life full of the, the things I've done to myself and to people. Thank you, for Jesus Christ, for dying for me and giving me another chance and washing me clean. In fact, giving me a thousand chances, staying with me through the rest of my life, cleansing me. Repentance and faith, those are the two elements that make a man or woman born again. They transform us. But you know, the one policy decision at the beginning, we find has to then be lived out day by day. Choice by choice and situation by situation, we make many choices to put the apple back on the tree, to follow him, not ourselves. Haven't you ever caught yourself heading down the road in some issue, some crisis has come up, some situation, some decision has to be made, and you have made it and are sailing down the road, and at some point you go, Wait a minute, I didn't even pray. Huh? Don't we do that? I do it all the time. It's the human pride. The thing still struggles in there. I'll handle this. Got it. Thanks anyway. And you want to take control by nature. And I would submit to you that there are certain areas in our life we do that more than others. Some areas I know I'm dumb. Some areas I don't know I'm dumb. See the difference? Okay, some areas I know I need God. Other areas I tend to think I can handle these. 
And I have to make a conscious decision when the Spirit corrects me. Look what you're doing again. Look what you're doing. I mean, it's simple things. This morning, reading the paper rather than praying. On the way in, I, I repented. I said, what pride that takes for me to assume that because I've preached this thing twice and you're, you're faithful, that I can just sort of sail into the next service and read the paper rather than having to talk to you. Is What is that? It's pride. It stinks. I know, it's, it's those things go on all the time in our hearts. They're little inclinations of the heart. And I had to stop and say, Father, I need you as desperately now as I ever need you. I can do nothing apart from you. I need you, Lord, in my, to love. I need you to, to think. I need you in every way. Come, Holy Spirit, and help me. I was doing that on my knees taking communion at the beginning of the service. I didn't read much of the paper. First section. Glanced at it. I can read it when I go home. It's fine. It's not fine when I'm preparing for a service. Let's apply this to four things quickly. One, we need to stop quickly. <clears throat> this is what I've really just, just ministered. Stop quickly when the Holy Spirit tells you you've taken control. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When you've leaned on your own understanding, as soon as you spot yourself, stop. It prevents living with foolish mistakes. Don't barge on ahead. Secondly, if there is a missing link in your armor, take time to fast and pray and ask why. Persecution is one thing. Perpetual trouble is another. Here's what I'm driving at. When we pridefully hang on to the apple in an area, and there's certain areas of our lives we're running and controlling, there you can bring into your life real trouble. I talked with somebody, but I'd gone home and I thought to myself, if I had a scenario like that in my life, where almost every area of their life, this is a Christian, and I don't question the fundamental decision. I don't think there was an attitude that's of rebellion, they need to get saved, it wasn't that. But it's often I can get saved, I can give that general permission, but then I, in, in, in some major areas, I still hang on to the apple, man. I'm still in control. I, I still, I, I don't even, often don't even realize I'm doing this. It is so intuitive and so deep in me, so proudful in me. I don't even know that I'm controlling. But I, I thought to myself, man, if I had that scenario, I would fast and pray and get on my belly and say, oh God, what's wrong? Listen to me. Persecution comes. The, the assault of the enemy on believers is, is relentless in a sense. We're always dealing with some of that. But that kind of trouble is different than when there's breakdown and the lack of peace and order in your life. There is in a believer's life a covering. And you can live at peace. Your family and your finances, you know, your, the various areas of life, there's struggle, there's always challenges and issues, but as you keep bringing them to the Lord, there's a peacefulness that comes over that area. If there's major breakdown, nothing's working and, and, and perpetually isn't, I would propose you probably are, are unaware, but you're pridefully hanging on to something, controlling something, refusing some form of repentance that you don't probably even see. What you do, you need God to even show it to us. We can't see these things without God's revelation. And, and so I have, on, on, on occasion in my life, fasted and prayed and got on my belly and said, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm doing something. I'm violating you somewhere. Would you show me? Because I've got a chink in the armor, and the enemy's coming through, and he's troubling my, my household, and I don't know why. Show me my father, what I'm doing.
And he will. He will. And I can close that chink. I believe in living in the protection. I know you can live in it. All right, thirdly, repentance, comes if it comes hard, <clears throat> and this is really what I've already said, recognize that pride has taken hold in that area. Different areas of our lives vary in the amount of pride we have. You may have an area you struggle in. I, it's easy for me. I have an area I struggle in. It's easy for you. It's personal. Fourthly, repentance teaches us to be honest with ourselves, which in turn helps us be honest with others. To walk in repentance takes a great humility. I have to say to the Lord, Lord, I trust you. I trust your love. So come now and show me what's in my heart. I'm not going to blame somebody else. I'm not playing games. I'm not making excuses. It causes me to look at myself with an intense honesty. Have you discovered that? A real Christian is a, is a man or woman who looks at themselves generally first in any situation. When you have blamers and liars, you have a, you, they're telling you their relationship with God is lousy because they're blaming and lying when they're before him too. You can't separate it. You can't compartmentalize this. This is character. And when we get a hold of who God really is, when we truly repent, it causes us to see I'm proud by nature I constantly need his help. And so I go before him and I say, Lord, show me what's here. Show me what needs to change. It causes me to be honest with myself, which causes me to be honest with you. It causes me to be often less judgmental and harsh toward others because I recognize I'm tending to go to my own stuff rather than yours. Blamers, finger pointers, usually don't have a repentant heart and a walk with God. Repentance is a blessing. It's humility. It's leaning not on our own understanding, but in all our ways knowing how much we need Him. That's repentance. And it leads to straight paths and peace in our lives. Well, did you, the ride must have been wild. From 30,000 feet, we plunged right into our hearts. But God's Word is like that. Heavenly Father, today, right now, we say this, we trust you. We trust your wisdom and your love. We trust that it was you who formed us in our mother's womb. And, and we're not going to criticize and fight with that. But we're going to put our hand in yours. Put that apple back on the tree and take your great hand, loving hand. And walk with you. And we say this. What you say is right is right. What you say is wrong is wrong. You're the one from this day forward that says good from evil, right from wrong. You're the one who leads. And how grateful we are that you will. We turn away from leaning on our own understanding. And where we tend to do that, our Father, would you convict us by the Spirit quickly? Where we pick up that, grab that steering wheel and start driving before we even realize we've talk, not talked to you. Catch us, Lord, and teach us to humble our hearts and turn to you quickly. We would walk in lives of repentance, tenderness, humility, putting our hand in yours. Day by day, moment by moment, choice by choice. And thank you for leading. 
Thank you for leading in Jesus' powerful name. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.